What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right. Thank you, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. And happy Monday. I am Brian. And for Kelly, once again, coming up on the show, two tech titans taking a hit. Apple may have trouble getting enough of the high-end iPhones after COVID shut down at some of its plants. Meta, meantime, reportedly planning large-scale layoffs this week. That stock is up today, but a lot of questions remain. Plus, do not let today's 70-degree weather here in New York fool you. Winter is coming, and it's going to be cold. And there may not be enough energy to keep everyone's homes heated or lighted, not just in England, but in New England as well. We're going to speak with the CEO of their biggest utility about what the White House can do to help. Plus, we are going to take you on a trip in earnings exchange, the story and the trade on Lyft, TripAdvisor, and Norwegian Cruise Lines. All of that is ahead, but let us begin with the markets. They are split. I, apparently, there's an election tomorrow, Dom Chu. Probably not going to see a lot of action today. What do you think? So I've heard, and just for the election side of things, a lot of volatility there. And I live technically in New England, Brian, so I'm Good watching luck. those electric bills as well and everything else. But anyway, the markets, as Brian point out, points out right now, are relatively mixed. There's outperformance in the Dow. It's up about 250-some points, up about three-quarters of 1%. The S&P 500 has now kind of gotten back up towards that 3,800 level, 3,780 the last trade. They're up about 10 handles, one-quarter of 1%, just about flat for the composite index. The Nasdaq down just one point, 10,473, the underperformer on the day right now. Remember, though, a lot of upside volatility that we've seen in some of those names over the course of the last few days here. One theme that some traders are watching is the nice move in energy today. Those stocks have been on a tear. Now, the energy sector spider, ticker XLE, is up about 59, 60 percent over the course of the last year, call it. Now, the interesting part about this is it's been up 15 of the last 16 trading days, even with some more downside trend over the near and medium term in oil prices themselves, that kind of gap has gotten a little bit wider over the course of the last several months here. So we'll watch whether or not that energy trade and WTI crude prices dislocate a little bit more. Remember, they tend to track pretty closely over the longer term. So we'll see whether or not that kind of divergence plays out a little bit more. And then the stock to watch today is Viatris. VTRS is the ticker. They're up 16 percent far and away the best-performing stock in the S&P 500. This is the pharmaceutical company that was formerly known as Upjohn, part of Pfizer, and Mylan, the generic drug giants over there. They combined a couple of years ago and formed Viatris. This stock reported earnings earlier today. Some questions about the comparability on the earnings side of things. Revenues did fall shy of estimates, but they announced two big acquisitions that are going to give them a bigger presence in ophthalmology, eye care. That's leading to some real optimism here for Viatris shares, 16% gain. So we'll watch whether or not that stock, which is, by the way, the highest going all the way back to June, can see some momentum here over the last year, down 18% bribe. Viatris, and then we don't talk about often, but the best performer today in the S&P, due in large part to acquisitions. I'll send things back over to you. Would you say that their plan to focus on eye care shows great corporate vision? I am not going to address that. Would you say that? 
I would try to say that and then get reamed by management for making a pun about it. Well, then I'm, then I'm doomed. Dom yeah. Chu commuting every day from Bangor, Maine. Yeah. That's not true. Dom, thank you. you got it. All right, let's zero in on some massive tectonic shifts coming out of China. Apple coming off its worst week since March of 2020. And now it's warning that COVID restrictions there are hurting iPhone production and could have a big impact on its bottom line. We've got full team coverage on every angle of the story. We've got Steve Kovac looking at Apple's exposure and how it is adjusting. Yunus Yoon is focusing on the Foxconn side, as well as China's zero COVID policy. And Thornburg Investment Management's Jason Brady is here with what it maybe all means for the market and your money. And should you own, buy or sell the stock? All right, we're going to get the news first. Steve Kovac, what is going on? A lot of rumors, a lot of chatter. What's the real story on this Apple high-end iPhone thing? Yeah, so we got uh, this report, uh, for, or this warning, rather, from Apple last night saying it won't be able to ship as many iPhone 14 Pro models as it originally expected due to the latest COVID shutdowns in China. So, Brian, let me tell you why this is so important. Before today, the hope among investors was that extra demand for those more expensive Pro models would offset any drop in unit sales from a year ago. But now Apple is at risk of missing even its own modest growth projections for the holiday quarter. Company has expanded production for the iPhone elsewhere, such as India, but it won't be enough to make up for the lockdown at that Foxconn facility in China. Now, it can take a month or so to get a 14 Pro after ordering if you order now, meaning it's going to be tough to get one in time for the holidays if you wait too much longer. Not to mention on other parts of Apple's businesses, services already under pressure from foreign exchange and a drop in App Store sales. And Apple also said Mac sales will see a significant drop year over year. So look, the iPhone 14 Pro was supposed to be the bright spot for Apple's quarter, helping it reach growth targets in a tough macro environment. But the warning last night, Brian, will make it that much more difficult to pull off. Of note, though, Apple is also saying demand for the pros are strong. So that's likely why we're not seeing shares punished as much today, Brian. All right, Steve, great stuff. Thank you very much. Now let's go to Yunus Yoon, who is live in Beijing. She's got Foxconn's response and whether Apple's warning could lead to any changes on the zero COVID policy front. Eunice, what are you learning and hearing? Well, Brian, it's not very good. Foxconn said it would revise down its forecast for Q4 because of those COVID restrictions. The company says that it's working closely with the government in order to reach and resume a full capacity of its production as quickly as possible. Now, to Foxconn, that means reorganizing the facilities to further restrict movement for the workers to between the factory and dormitories, but of course also improving the conditions at the factory so that workers will stay and also continue to come. So they're also driving up uh, financial incentives offering a one-time bonus of $69 for anybody who decides to return and then also uh, ramping up this recruitment drive uh, saying that they're going to offer 20% salary hikes for new recruits. Now, official media is quoting sources at the factory saying that the management is hoping that a full resumption of production would be reached by the end of November. Uh, China um, also singled out uh, this uh, so-called iPhone city or the city of Zhengzhou for what they described as excessive COVID controls. Even so, uh, the government here uh, said that the zero COVID policy, which, Brian, as you all well know, is the pet policy of President Xi Jinping, is as a completely correct, the most economical and effective. So after those comments came out over the weekend, 
uh, from Beijing. That really dashed hopes that we would see a quick reopening. There's a little bit of rumbling in the markets a few days ahead of time that maybe there's going to be something there. Now, most people are going back to their expectations that the reopening, if there is one, isn't going to happen very quickly. Um, there might be some targeted measures, but nothing so quickly, despite the disruption yeah. at businesses such as Apple. Brian? You don't have to answer, Eunice, but my guess is they did not poll the people before coming out with that response. Eunice Yoon, thank you very much. Just wonder how much more they can take. All right. We're going to talk more about what that means for your money in just a moment. But Apple is not the only mega cap tech name that is making headlines. So is Meta. You know them as Facebook. The stock moving higher on a Wall Street Journal report. The company could begin large scale layoffs as soon as this week. Let's go back now to Steve. Steve, do we have any idea what large scale might mean. How many people are we talking about? Yeah, according to the Wall Street Journal, Brian, it's thousands, and they're, they're going to get layoffs as soon as Wednesday this week, according to the Journal. After going on a hiring and spending spree during the pandemic, along with its other big tech peers. So now Meta declined to confirm the layoffs are actually happening this week, but a spokesperson pointed us to Mark Zuckerberg's statement on the last earnings call where he said, quote, some teams will grow meaningfully, but most other teams will stay flat or shrink over the next year. Also said overall headcount will be about the same or a little lower this time next year. But look, that headcount ballooned during the pandemic, Meta growing from 45,000 to 87,000 employees over the last three years, nearly doubling headcount in that time period. And they weren't alone. Alphabet during the same time period, headcount grew 57% to 187,000 employees. And Amazon, it doubled headcount up to 1.6 million employees. Now, Apple's an outlier in the big tech group hired more slowly than its peers, growing its headcount about 20 percent. All of these names are cutting costs, though, but Meta is the only one expected to do mass layoffs. And that's because Meta is under the most pressure to make cuts after rattling investors during its last earnings report on its increased spending on the money losing metaverse business. Shares down more than 70 percent for the year, Brian. What's amazing is they're hiring thousands of employees every quarter and now reversing that a uh, lot going on at Meta. Steve, thank you very sure. much. All right, so now let's kind of bring it all together and see what it means for your money in the markets. Tech, obviously, under a lot of pressure this year. Just look at some of the declines that we're showing you on the screen. Apple down 23%, Microsoft 34%, and Meta down 72% this year. This year. Well, your next guest says these companies are still meaningful. Maybe don't have quite the market impact, but they matter a lot. Let's talk more about it with Jason Brady of Thornburg investment manager jason good to have you back on again i know there's people that have got to be looking at meta and thinking wow down 72 percent three-fourths of its value there's got to be value here is there value there or is this the classic value trap it's a great question brian i would say that what what is happening within the dynamic of the ownership of that name happens a lot in markets, right? Where a name goes from being a growth leader to becoming a value name, and that's a painful process. That's one which often overshoots from a price perspective. The real question for Meta is, what is the ROI on the spending that they're doing for the metaverse? And for investors, that's been extremely unclear. It's still very cash flow generative in its main business, and it is slowing, that growth is slowing a lot. Uh, but it's a very successful business and one where you should be willing to pay some kind of interesting multiple. But the meta question is, is enormous. 
Yeah, I mean, are you guys looking at it? I mean, do you look at it and say, okay, valuations have come down, but their core business is going down? Like, what, how, do we, how do we look at this company? This is, this is a 2000, 2001 like wipeout. We have owned, we've owned the name uh, various times in the past. What I'll say is for, for investors, there's a few notes of caution. One, just because something's down 70% doesn't mean that it's a good value. As you say, oftentimes that is the value trap. It says that the top tick actually has some informational value. And in this case, that hasn't seemed to be the case. The second piece there is really, what is the forward look on the organization? We've had, we've had some really nice transformational moments uh, for Facebook that Meta uh, moving to mobile, for example, when the market doubted that. Microsoft, another name that's uh, prominent in this group, has absolutely executed an organizational transformation. But these are things are really, really hard to do. And it strikes me that the one Meta's trying to do today is much more challenging. Yeah, let's go on to some of these other ones. Microsoft, down 34%. Now, a lot of these companies got bid up during the pandemic, right? They just figured everybody's going to be working from home forever. We'll never leave our computers. So we look at it down 34%, but it's still well higher than it was a couple of years ago. By the way, they're not the only ones like that. How do we look at a Microsoft? They're not the only ones like that, as you say. Uh, what's happened in the interim, even when you sort of take out some of the significant boosts from the pandemic, is that they've grown revenue and earnings quite nicely. So to say like, oh gosh, it's, you know, it's still higher than it was, well, it's, it's a pretty interesting name with great growth characteristics and a transformation of the business to more recurring earnings. I think that's a bigger picture uh, statement about this group. It's more cyclical than we thought. Alphabet's uh, an advertising giant, right? Um, it's, there are some challenges, you know, ties with China for Apple that you've detailed. But now that things are a lot cheaper, you can look at each individual business and say, hey, do I want to pay this for this? It's not like the tree is going to continue to grow the sky. Yeah. But in Microsoft's case, I think there's something really interesting there. All right, give us some opportunity, Jason. A name you are buying actively. There are so many ways for investors to balance their portfolio here, away from fixed income, which we won't even get into, which is much, much more interesting. In that context, what you're seeing is quote unquote value names really start to take off and take leadership because what we're seeing is actually those names are, are interesting and still growing. AstraZeneca is a great example. Double digit top line, uh, they're going to report here, honestly, it looks like a very interesting cash flow story to us. And healthcare as a sector, you know, is technology in essence. It's been, should, should have been at, on the top of everyone's mind over the last couple of years. And we think there's a lot of opportunity there. Jason Brady, always love having you on. Finding some opportunity, AstraZeneca. Jason, thank you. All right, coming up, sailing, hailing, and trip taking. We're going to get you ready for three key consumer names reporting after the bell. But first... Listen up, Boston, and all of you folks listening and watching in New England right now. Your biggest utility, one you may get your power from, says they may not have enough energy to light and heat your home this winter unless something big changes. Eversource Energy's Joe Nolan is up next with the warning you got to hear and what help Congress and the White House may be able to provide. That is next. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. 
Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Natural gas prices, they are rising again today, hitting the highest level in a month. Temperatures are expected to turn sharply colder over the next week. And with winter right around the corner, one New England power provider is sounding a bit of an alarm. In a letter to the White House last week, Eversource Energy CEO Joe Noland explained that he is, quote, deeply concerned about the potentially severe impact a winter energy shortfall would have on the region, end quote. He goes on to say that, quote, because of the war in Ukraine, imported liquefied natural gas, LNG, is not available to the New England region in the volumes necessary to meet the winter's needs. And this represents a serious public health and safety threat. Joining us now with the solutions he proposed is Eversource CEO Joe Nolan. Joe, it's good to have you on, I guess, although I wish it was under different circumstances. We've been talking about this potential for more than a year. People say, oh, you're fear-mongering, whatever. We are now at the point of 12 days of diesel in New England. What's the real risk to your customers that one day in the winter there may not be enough natural gas to make the power you need to sell them? Yeah, thanks, Brian, for having me on. It's, uh, you know, very, very challenging times. You know, what's taking place now as we speak, there are uh, tankers down in the Gulf of Mexico. They're filling up with American LNG and they're leaving for ports uh, around the world, not in America, uh, unfortunately. And then if we want to get LNG in the Northeast, they're they're coming from Trinidad and Tobago. We can't get uh, domestic LNG uh, moving in and out of the ports. Uh, we are going to face some challenges with the electric generation in the region, not natural gas so much, although the pricing is significant. But a lack of fuel to, uh, for these electric generators is, is going to pose a problem in the winter months there, January, February, should we hit a polar vortex. Yeah, and there are projections for, for very cold weather over this winter. Let's hope they're wrong. Joe, here's, okay, forget about pipelines for now because pipelines are probably a non-starter for you guys and it's also a multi-year thing. Let's talk about the near-term fixes and what you proposed. You referenced the LNG going from Houston or Lake Charles or Corpus Christi going to Europe where they're willing to pay a lot of money for it, by the way, because of what's going on with Ukraine and the war. Do we need an end or a waiver for the Jones Act so we don't care what ship it is, whether they're from Cyprus or Saudi Arabia, can ship LNG from Corpus Christi to Boston because you can't do it right now. Well, given the time of the year, we're looking right now for a waiver. A waiver would be uh, would be manna from heaven as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's still very complex. They did it when Puerto Rico was in need. There's no reason I can't do it now when the Northeast is in need 
of uh, American LNG. Would you be able to get enough into the One Harbor and get it at the price where we know rates have already gone up? We, they've gone up everywhere, by the way, not just in New England. Uh, would you be able to get it and get it at a price where your customers could afford it? I absolutely feel that we would be able to. Now, this would be a burden on electric customers uh, because we already, you know, we store 20 to 25 days of fuel for our natural gas customers uh, in, in uh, tanks in and around the New England area. So this would strictly be for generators in the area that needs to uh, provide electricity. The alternative is rolling blackouts. And I think that everybody understands that that is not an attractive option. No, this this is America. This is, okay. Boston and Portsmouth and and Kennebunkport and Hartford rolling blackouts because we can't get enough energy in America. And you guys are 150 miles away from the biggest natural gas field in the United States. I mean, this is mind blowing. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to dive into politics, Joe, and I'm sure you don't either. Right now, 70% of the ISO, Independent Systems Operator New England, 70% of your power generation is natural gas or nuclear. And, and I understand this vineyard wind project is great. It's going to be really cool and provide electricity to 400,000 homes. But New England has grown its population by a million in the last 20 years. It doesn't feel like what we hear is the reality from what's actually occurring. You're absolutely right. I mean, the biggest challenge we have is that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And these are intermittent resources, and we need to have battery uh, storage in the area. Uh, we deployed a battery out in Provincetown, which allows us to carry 11,000 customers for several hours should an outage occur. That's the type of advances that we need if we're going to bring in the level of uh, renewable energy that we're really targeting at this point. Yeah, and I want to be clear on what you just said, and it's cool. Again, this, this renewables are awesome. They're, the technology is, is very cool, and they create jobs. But even the best battery storage is, what, 12 hours max? Just like a cell phone. It's no different. Correct. So you can generate a bunch of wind power offshore. Everybody generates it at the same time because you generate it when the wind blows, right, or the sun shines. You try to store it, you got to use it, or you lose it. I mean, this doesn't seem like a long-term solution. Why aren't we talking more about nuclear? We're talking about taking nuclear out instead of putting nuclear in. Well, you know, nuclear power you know, is, is, is going through its you know, changes right now. I do see opportunities there. And, you know, certainly when we meet as an industry, we, you know, there's been a lot of talk around it. So uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lose hope on the nuclear power option, Brian. So what is in five years from now, Joe, what do we do? We can't have this every year. Well, you'll have significant offshore wind uh, at that point, And I, I'm sure that the battery technology will be uh, in position as well. So uh, I, I don't think I'm not worried about five years. I'm worried about the next two years, uh, just being able to get through this difficult and challenging time. It is. And, and what does it mean for customers and prices? We know they've already gone up. It's, it's not it's not your fault. I mean, you guys are regulated. You have to buy your input costs, like you said, at the cost that's available. What's going to mean for, for Bostonians? Yeah, you know, the pricing is, uh, is such a challenge for our customers. And, you know, folks are seeing pricing anywhere from 15 to 40 uh, percent the, for the commodity portion. Of, that's with the gas or the electricity. Uh, and it's, it's very, very difficult for them. And uh, there's really no need for it, given, given how close and how much domestic uh, LNG we have as well as even even just opening the diesel reserves, getting diesel up here for these 
uh, for these fossil fuel plants. I mean, the, the government has a significant uh, petroleum reserve. And, you know, let's bring some of that up to the region and help folks. They did it during Superstorm Sandy, and they could certainly do it now. 12 days of diesel in New England right now. I think that's the lowest it's been in decades. Let's hope the weather holds out. Joe Nolan, really important. I hope the White House and Congress are listening, maybe making some tweaks to the Jones Act to make sure that all you Bostonians and everybody else out there can get the heat and light they need. Joe, thank you. Thanks very much, Brian. All right, hopefully somebody's listening, by the way. Electricity prices up 31% year over year in September in the New England region. All right, coming up, business is on the ballot in tomorrow's midterm elections. And while voters may not agree on a whole lot these days, you'd be surprised about how many on both sides say they are worried about the economy. Elon Moy joining us now with a countdown to the results. We're also counting you down, by the way. Oh, yeah. Tonight's Powerball drawing. It may hit two billion bucks. Okay, so you've got the winning ticket. We know. That's great. Congratulations. When you win, what do you do with your taxes? Robert Frank is here to tell you. Stick around. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right. I'll say happy Monday because why not? Yeah, it's Monday, but here in the Northeast, it's 70, maybe 75 degrees. People are walking around in Manhattan in T-shirts and shorts. Enjoy it while it lasts. It's supposed to drop about 20 degrees tomorrow. Still, let's enjoy it. Markets seem to like it. Dow is up, not quite on its high. It's up 300 points right now, just off its high. S&P and NASDAQ also in the green. The NASDAQ was lower earlier. It's higher now. Insert reason why more buyers and sellers, Federal Reserve, a lot of people talking about maybe the polls shifting is a reason why the markets, either way, we're in the green today. All right, more on the markets coming up right now, though. Let's get a CNBC News update with Tyler Mathis. Brian, thank you very much. Uh, And here's what's happening at this hour. Another NFL coach has been sacked after a weak start to the season. The Indianapolis Colts have fired head coach Frank Reich after a painful 26-3 loss to the New New England Patriots yesterday. The Colts now have a uh, 3-5-1 record and the lowest scoring offense in the league. There were high hopes for this team going into the season. Downtown Houston filling with Astros fans to celebrate their team's World Series win over the weekend. Local police expect a million people to cheer on the victors. And to accommodate the big turnout, the parade will be nearly twice as long as last year's celebration. Some school districts have even canceled classes as they cheer their Astros. Jimmy Kimmel will host the next Oscar Awards. It'll be his third time presiding over the ceremony. First since 2018, Kimmel thanked the show's producers for asking him to work the Oscars again, calling it either a great honor or a trap. The 95th Oscars will be held on March 12th of next year. Brian, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. Coming up, ships, trips, and tips. It's earnings exchange, and it's next. 
Welcome back, everybody. It's time now for Earnings Exchange. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Lyft, TripAdvisor, and Norwegian Cruise Lines. All right, stock number one is Lyft. Now, the share has been just crushed this year, struggling with many parts of its business and the overall economy. Lyft laying off 13% of its staff last week, and it could soon be dealing with having to classify workers as employees, not contractors. That's under President Biden's proposed labor laws. So is there any reason to buy this beaten down stock? Let us ask Jeff Mills, the CIO at Bryn Mawr Trust, also a CNBC contributor. Again, Jeff, same question I asked earlier. Good value or value trap? Hey, Brian. Yeah, pretty bleak intro there relative to Lyft. But I, I do think it's sort of interesting heading into the earnings print. You know, I think you probably see some reacceleration in growth. You know, you have consumers are still spending on services, certainly a lot more so than good. So clearly good for a company like Lyft, maybe stating the obvious. And you made the point that the cost structure could increase given some of the new gig economy worker proposals. But at the same time, I think that that's pretty much expected at this point. I also don't know that the near term impact is actually well understood, but maybe most importantly, it's reflected in the valuation. So you have a profitable company. I think that's key in this market. Uh, it's basically trading at a market multiple with, I think, better growth prospects. So unlike the other two stocks we're going to talk about, Lyft is right on the lows, no optimism priced in. So I think you could see a positive reaction uh, after the earnings print here. Because again, the company is profitable. I mean, it's they, they, they are very different than Uber. People lump them together, but they're not the same. Yeah, I think that that's key in this market, too. I, I think companies are going to continue to get punished for not being profitable, not producing cash flow. So for a company like this that hasn't had really any optimism reflected in the share price heading into the print, potentially interesting. I think I think it's J.P. Morgan that has like an unprofitable tech index and it's just been leveled. We'll find that maybe for tomorrow. Sure. All right. Next up, stock two. That is TripAdvisor. Shares are down more than three percent that ahead of earnings today. They've fallen 16 percent this year. But. Will the ongoing travel boom finally give Trip a boost this quarter? Seema Modi is here with the story on TripAdvisor. Seema. Brian, the strength in travel and the commentary that we received from Expedia and Booking Holdings, it's so detached, right, from what we're hearing about the broader economy. So when TripAdvisor reports tonight, analysts will want an update on active users, the rebound it's seeing in its experiences category. Remember, that includes tours, cooking classes, photography lessons. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky on its earnings call last week said it saw a record number of experiences booked in the third quarter. So is Trip seeing something similar play out in its category, specifically here in the United States and Europe, where it has Viator. Uh, but broadly speaking, this has widely been seen as a takeover target over the last couple of years, unconfirmed, but that has been the speculation out there. Uh, and it has a new CEO who was appointed in May, Matt Goldberg, a former media executive. It just brought on a new CFO in the last four weeks. So this will be the first time shareholders will get to see uh, these two individuals address the company, address the company's uh, direction going forward and what its trajectory looks like, Brian. Yeah, Jeff, listen, we know that we know that travel's been booming, but when you look at the stock, we're probably past the travel peak, at least just because of summer, if, if nothing else. The stock's had a 40% pop off its lows. You know, you wonder if the stock, if we would have done this a month ago, it may be different with what you're going to say right now. Yeah, Brian, I think you sort of took the words right out of my mouth. And I'll give you the good and I'll give you the bad. But ultimately, because of that pop, I think you probably tread lightly 
heading into the print here. You know, the stock often shows some resilience around that $20 level, and it has bounced off that recently. So that's good. And then the valuation, 15, 16 times forward, that's historically cheap for the stock. However, my issue is that I think earnings expectations might be a little bit too high. Like you said, especially coming off of that 40% move in the stock heading into earnings, you're also starting to see some fatigue at that downward sloping 200-day moving average. So technically, maybe not the best setup. Uh, obviously, like you said, a huge spike in travel demand, but I, I think you're seeing some signs of cooling here. To me, there has to be some impact from the economic cycle as the Fed induces at least some weakness in the labor market. Consumer confidence probably continues to drift lower. In Europe, it's it's abysmal. So the question is, does this pent up travel demand that maybe still exists outweigh the weakness in the global economy? My guess is probably not. I think you have a margin of safety in this one because of the valuation. But look at a live nation, for example, pretty good results, stock down 7%, Expedia, uh, missed bookings, and now the stock is getting punished yeah. pretty aggressively here. So I don't know why this is going to be all that different. Well, earnings are backward looking. I mean, everyone's looking forward, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling toward freedom. That's a Simpsons line. All right. Finally, Norwegian Cruise Line shares are down ahead of today's results, but they're up nearly 30% of the past month. CEO Frank Del Rio announced last month at Carnival to eliminate all vaccination and masking policies as the president said on 60 Minutes that the pandemic is over. Outside of that, SEMA, what can you tell us? I got to imagine, I mean, Jeff talked about, you know, Europe. My gosh. I mean, if you're paying these ships run on bunker diesel fuel, they got to be paying a ton. That, that's going to be one of the big questions with Brent crude nearing $100 a barrel, Brian, um, managing fuel costs. But aside from that, UBS and Truist analysts upgraded shares of Norwegian Cruise Line just in the last two weeks on this idea that as the economy softens, it's the luxury traveler that you want to bet on. And of the three major publicly listed cruise lines, Norwegian has the strongest footprint. It's Oceana and Regent brands make up about 14 percent of its fleet. Uh, it's talked about pricing power, a very different story than we heard from Carnival a couple of weeks ago when it said it's discounting tickets. Uh, its average occupancy has been in the 80s, which is up from second quarter, which was around 65%. So it's certainly seen acceleration in bookings. But as we know with the cruise lines, it's also about its balance sheet. Over the course of the next two to three years, Norwegian has about a billion dollars in debt coming due. Brian. A lot of debt and also half the revenue coming out of Europe. Jeff, I mean, to Seema's point, Brent crude's back at 100 bucks. They're going to be paying a fortune to fill these ships up all at the same time. The consumer in Europe is getting crushed with their own personal energy costs. I mean, this seems like a maybe a tough story. Yeah, I think it is both for near term reasons and just structural reasons as well. You know, first of all, like we mentioned, 50 percent of revenues outside of the U.S., a fair bit in Europe. So we all know the issues there. And for me, just exposure to discretionary spending. Yes, maybe more high end. But historically, if you go back and look at cruise lines, haven't done particularly well during recessions. And I think that there's just this impairment coming out of covid. Things are getting better. But I look at this similar to banks coming out of 2008, you know, real structural challenges, real balance sheet yeah. issues that can take years to work themselves out. So I want to see some path to profitability, free cash flow. And like you said, this stock has run up quite a bit after that investor day in the beginning of October. So it's hard for me to see a positive earnings yeah. catalyst here after that kind of a move. You wanted to buy it two and a half years ago. See, I got to leave it with an incredibly important and really deep question for you. Are cruises fun? I've never been on one. Like, are they is it is it worth it? 
I think it depends on the person you speak to. I've been on a cruise, and it can be fun. I think the be- the one thing to take into account when it comes to cruising is it's very convenient. So if you're with your family, which includes your 80-year-old grandpa to a niece who is two years old, there is something for everyone. And if you have someone who's a picky eater, there are four restaurants, right? Many activities, and that's why so many families tend to like this option when, when traveling. Seema's comments were not paid for or endorsed by the no. cruise line industry. Seema Modi, thank you. It's like I've been on an oil rig. You've been on a cruise ship. Let's flip beats. together. You're yeah. winning. Happy to. Seema, thank you. Jeff, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Right. By the way, oil rigs are cool. There's something for everybody. It's like chili. All right, coming up, with inflation raging, it is no surprise Americans are unhappy with the economy. And today and tomorrow, they may take it out on the party in power. Alon Moy is up with that next. Wild speculation by now. You've heard that the midterm elections are tomorrow. And the final NBC poll shows more than 80 percent of voters are unhappy or concerned with the economy. And that is going to impact how they vote. Alon Moy joining us now with what that means maybe for for both parties. Alon, the midterms are mercifully upon us. Yeah, just one more day, Brian. And polling by NBC News shows that voters are extremely unhappy with the economy, as you said, and that appears to be giving Republicans an edge heading into Election Day. If you look at this chart here, it shows that 81 percent of voters are dissatisfied, a record for the Biden administration. The last time that we saw numbers this bad was back in 2010 after the Great Recession. Republicans won 63 House seats back then, and President Obama famously called it a shellacking. Now, a majority of those who are dissatisfied are Republican, 55 percent. But Democrats aren't pleased either. 38 percent, more than a third, also gave the economy a negative rating. And when NBC asked voters to rank whether the cost of living or abortion was more important to their decision, 58 percent chose inflation, 38 percent picked abortion. Now, that is important because Democrats have been counting on the end of Roe v. Wade to energize their base. And the NBC survey did find that voters who are focused on abortion are more engaged in the election. But there are simply more voters in a broader cross-section who are worried about the economy. So, Brian, it's clear in the polling data that voters want change in this election. They certainly do. All right. Looking at the election, I, I, I sent you some stuff that I was looking at. I'm going to post some stuff later about the counties I like. What are you, because you know, you're the expert on this. What are you going to be most closely watching tomorrow and tomorrow night in terms of counties, other races, what? Yeah, so I think obviously the swing states that we've all been talking about, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia, those are going to be really important. But I think a really sort of crazy dynamic we've been seeing here is that Republicans have been running to the right in the general election to ensure that they still have that MAGA base and that MAGA energy and vote come out. But Democrats have been running toward the center. And we've seen that over the past few days with this new ad out in Georgia for Raphael Warnock, in which he has Republicans attacking his GOP challenger, Senator Mark Kelly in Arizona today is out uh, canvassing and out campaigning with Republicans. We've seen it in Nevada as well, where Senator Catherine Cortez Masso has gotten members of her challenger's family to endorse her. So we've seen Democrats actively and directly court Republicans here because they know that in order to win, they're going to have to appeal to that more moderate ground. That's where they're going to make up those independent swing voters. 
Yeah, and Chris Kruger was saying, watch the Maine governor's race because it's supposed to go to the Democrats, but how, how close it might be could be a good early tell on the mood of the voter, or maybe that's just Maine. Elon Moy, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Elon won't sleep for the next 48 hours. All right, we're going to have even more on the battleground issues facing you, investors, consumers, et cetera, et cetera, on tonight's 7 p.m. special, Taking Stock. That is 7 p.m. tonight. Tune in. All right, coming up, cash has been trash for like the past, I don't know, 20 years. But Citigroup now says cash is king once again. We'll find out why. All right, even with this year, the S&P 500 is still up more than 170% over the past decade. Do not forget that. Yeah, this year's been tough. But the market has made people a lot of money in the longer term. And in that time, cash has been widely viewed as, you know, just kind of like trash. Don't use it. It's a waste of time. But as the Fed continues to hike and stocks go down and bonds go down, cash may be looking a lot more attractive. Your next guest says the Fed hikes by half point in December, proxied by yields. Cash will outperform the expected return on a standard 60-40 portfolio. Joining us now on why cash may be king once again is Dirk Willer. He is the global head of macro asset allocation and emerging market strategy at Citigroup. Dirk, good to have you on. Cash itself doesn't, so doesn't generate a return if it's just sitting in a bank, except for maybe, you know, a half of 2%, whatever it might be. It also loses that value on a real basis when you factor in inflation. So how can cash outperform other assets? I guess unless, of course, you think those other assets are going to keep going down? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, it's a good question. Of course, in real terms, we still have negative real yields here. But we compare nominal returns to nominal returns, and inflation will bite into your S&P returns as well. I think the interesting thing that happened, that is happening this year, is that yields for the first time for many years of cash, meaning three months T-bills, will be above the yield of a 60-40 portfolio. Um, that uses earnings yield and that's using uh, treasuries. And when that happened in the past, it was not a particularly good environment for the 60-40 portfolio because there was this flow into cash and, and people liked cash. And so risky assets struggled. So the combination of these higher cash yields beating the 60-40 uh, actually by the December Fed meeting, plus sharply reduced benefits from correlation between bonds and equities, which helped you in the past, really mean that cash became much more attractive as a class than it had been for, yes, 20 years. How long should we invest in, in cash? How long do you see this, this trend lasting, Dirk? Yeah, I think one other positive aspect of cash is, of course, that it does give you the option to have that cash to, again, move back to risky markets. The way we see it is that U.S. Treasuries, you have to buy when the Fed is almost done hiking. Now, we have a call that will go until May to roughly 450, uh, 550 at the upper end of the range. And um, when that is close, I think some of the cash should go into treasuries again. When do you buy the S&P, though? On the S&P, it's very clear that it really only bottoms when the U.S. recession has started and uh, is well on the way. And we have a recession call here at City for the second half of next year. So the way we would see it is now is a good time to own cash, earn that yield. Then as the Fed gets to the end of the cycle, some of that would be deployed in treasuries. 
as the recession is fully understood and has started, then it's time to again deploy the rest of the cash and risky assets. As the global head of macro and asset allocation Citigroup, do people kind of look at you like, Dirk, I, you know, I've been doing this 25 years. I've never heard anyone recommend cash. Yeah, it, I mean, it ha it's, it's rare that it works, right? And um, especially because usually the 60-40 really benefits from this uh, positive correlation between bonds and equities. But that is just not the case anymore. You don't get these benefits in a high inflation environment, uh, just as you didn't get it in the 70s. And therefore, it's a special situation where really bonds go down at the same time as equities go down. And only in these situations does it make sense of a cash allocation. Yeah. But, you know, we are in that environment right now. And that's why I think it's it's rare that it works, but it should work. Well, it's an interesting take. Listen, Dirk, maybe we do a whole hour special devoted to cash strategies. Dirk Willer, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Cash in much. turmoil. All right, still ahead. So you're going to win the Powerball tonight. We hope you do. How much, and you're the only winner, how much of that $1.9 billion do you actually get to take home? Robert Frank is up with that and some tax talk about it. Next. All right, let's get to one more thing before we go, and that is the record Powerball jackpot now expected to hit $1.9 billion. But let's say you've got that winning ticket, you and only you. I mean, you can't because I do, but let's assume you did. Robert Frank joins us now. Okay, uh, we win $1.9 billion. We call our lawyer, call our family and say goodbye, whatever it might be. <laughs> How much do we actually get to take home? And, Brian, don't forget your accountant as well. That's the most important call. If there is a single winner, they would take home less than a third of that jackpot total, not just because of taxes, Brian, but also because of the Fed. Here's why. The official jackpot number is the total earnings of the lump sum if it were invested in an annuity for 29 years. That rate of return, of course, driven by interest rates. Now that rates are higher, the jackpot is hundreds of millions higher than it would have been off the same lump sum a year ago. But the lump sum, of course, is what matters since that's what everyone takes. The lump sum for this jackpot is $929 million. There have actually been higher lump sums in the past but those higher rates right now make this a record. Now, if there is a single winner, they would pay the IRS right off the bat $223 million of withholding taxes and another $121 million at tax time, leaving them with $585 million after taxes. Now, some states also tax winnings. So if you live in New York or New Jersey, your total take-home would be about $485 million in New York City it would be only $450 million, Brian. That's a lot less than $1.9 billion, but still enough to buy like a whole garage full of those Lamborghinis you were driving a little while back or maybe that yacht we were showing on Friday. Uh, it's amazing that, that you can turn $1.9 billion into, quote, only $400 million without even doing anything. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. they well, take their, they take taxes, their, they take their pound of flesh, do they the not? Sum. Yep. Yep. It's still a life-changing amount of money. I'm not turning it down, and I won't when I have when they announce my winning numbers tonight, Robert. I picked one, two, three, four, five, six, Powerball seven. Can't lose. Robert Frank, thank you. Good luck. Good luck to everybody out there. Good luck to Power Lunch. They start right now. You've been listening to the exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time. 
same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 